um, Emily Rat Black, Chris Daly, Amy Gerstler, Todd Goldberg, Jim Caruso, uh, with a list of awards and accomplishments it would take me all day long to recite. So instead, let's just well, clap for them. Yes, I'm going to recite them. Uh, uh, hi. Uh, thank you, Carrie. Thank you to. Every oh Charlotte, <laughs> thank you. Can should Sorry. we pass you the baby? No, not unless you want to. No. <laughs> okay. So um, thank you all for coming. It's so it's so crowded. I'm so glad I made notes for myself because I'm looking at you guys and I'm nervous all of a sudden. Is there a lot of people here? And there are a lot of people actually that I don't know, which is kind of fabulous. Um, I, that's what happens when you have five readers and you're not one of them. Um, I, <laughs> Oh, Charlotte. I'm, um, I'm Dinah Lenny, and um, I'm thrilled to be here, and I'm grateful to Skylight and everybody at Skylight. I'm grateful to all of you for coming. And this book is the fourth in a series um, that has been, for me, indispensable. There are four of them. Um, they were, as a reader, as a writer, as a teacher, I've used them. Has anybody used the other three books? In short, in brief, and short takes. Um, Judith Ki- Kitchen edited the first two with Mary Pomier Jones, then she did the third short takes by herself, and then in a spring, in spring of 2014, she asked me if I'd do this last one with her. Um, Judith was indefatigable, to give you an idea. She died last uh, November. Um, a half an hour before she died, she was cleaning out her closets, and that was her style. She was writing to the end. She was reading and teaching and absolutely on her game right till the end, um, and I want to quote from her because she's not here. I want to quote from her introduction a little bit. It's characteristically clear and insightful. She notes that we tried to select a broad cross-section of human experience in addition to some more whimsical experiments. She calls attention to pieces scattered throughout that contain commentary on arts, culture, politics included. And she writes, the result is a mixture of memoir and critique, article and meditation, slice of life and conjecture, fragment and contemplation. The other thing that she says that's interesting in the, in the intro is she says, this collection contains less love and more violence. What does that mean? Less landscape and more town or cityscape, less nature and more regret, less lyric and more narrative. Is this just coincidence? So, I don't know, you know, you guys will be the judge. I mean, the, the odd thing tonight, I want to say, I, I wrote my own intro, and, I, and I'd like to add that there's plenty of love and landscape and nature and lyric in the book. Um, I can't tell you how much I loved working on it. And, and the best part was sort of what Carrie was talking about, is that, the, the, that it amounted to putting together the pieces in a way that felt um, like a show. And uh, not, it, it wasn't random, it was something, we wanted to give it a real sort of shape, so it's like walking through a gallery, I, I hope, um, with a beginning and a middle and an end. But obviously, you guys aren't going to read it that way. Hi, Kim. So, um, <laughs> well, it's really fun when you see someone you know. <laughs> so, um, that was Kim Young. Oh. Yeah, you know her. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, <laughs> hi, Kim. <laughs> and they're hiding back here. I have, okay. 
the, th the wonderful thing about the pieces in this book is that they turn out to be, you know, modular, mo movable. And, and obviously, um, most readers are not going to read the book from beginning to end. They're going to pick and choose according to their whim, and that's what you're supposed to do. Um, but that said, tonight we're going to do this in order, um, in the order in which they appear in the book, which is not, you know, there are, there are gaps in between. Um, w one of the writers who's in the book recently, Lynn Sharon Schwartz, recently emailed me, and she said she'd received her copy. She said, it's like a big party with quite a few people one knows and a lot of interesting-looking strangers. <laughs> kind of like tonight. Um, there's so much pie, you guys. There are more pies. And, and nobody has even... I mean, the chocolate pecan pie has barely been touched. I'm just saying. Okay, so um, tonight, for your entertainment, we have five readers. And notwithstanding my claims about the modular nature of things, they do sort of, some of these pieces come close to each other in the book. Um, we're going to start, I'm going to introduce the readers now, and then they can talk about their pieces a little bit if they want when they come up, but then you, you've been introduced and you'll know who they are. Um, we're going to start with Chris Daly. We'll move on to Todd Goldberg, Amy Gerstler, Emily Rapp-Black, and Jim Crusoe. Um, and, you know, it's funny, I was telling um, Sarah Campbell, who's here in the front row, that, that I ran into her in Trader Joe's yesterday, because we live in such a small town, and I was telling her that it was kind of a dark selection, and she said I should bill it as L.A. Noir. But um, to, to kind of sort of lighten it up at the end, I think what I'm going to do is read Judith's piece, which, piece, which is this big. It's just a couple of paragraphs. Um, let me tell you about my readers. Chris Daly, where is Chris? Oh, goody. Okay. Um, <laughs> Chris's work has appeared in the Los Angeles Times, the Los Angeles Review of Books, Dum Dum Zine, and The Collegist, where her selection first appeared, in fact, the selection she's going to read us tonight. She teaches academic writing at the California Insti Institute of Technology and is the co-director of Writing Workshops L.A. Todd Goldberg, who will follow Chris about sort of a hundred pages into the book, um, is the author of a dozen books, including most recently Gangsterland. Um, I, somebody just told me how much they enjoyed it. Somebody here. Oh, somebody here just I love said. That person. I know. I'm going to introduce you to her later. Um, his nonfiction criticism and essays have appeared widely, including in the Los Angeles Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Best American Essays. He lives in Indio and he directs the low residency MFA in creative writing and writing for the performing arts at the University of California, Riverside. Am I talking too fast? No, Good. Know. Okay. Amy Gersler. Where's Amy? Wave, because she's not in the little lineup over here. Um, Amy is a writer of poetry, nonfiction, and journalism, and her books of poems include Scattered at Sea, which was long listed for the National Book Award recently, and Dearest Creature, which was named a New York Times notable book and shortlisted for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize. She has 12 other books of poetry. Um, Bitter Angel won the National Book Critics Circle Award in Poetry. She was the 2010 guest editor of the yearly anthology Best American Poetry. She lives across the street from me. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I, I just drop her, her name and, and dine out on her all the time. Um, Amy currently teaches in the MFA writing program at the University of California at Irvine. Emily Rapp-Black works for Todd Goldberg. 
<laughs> um, in the U in the UCR Palm Desert MFA program in writing and the performing arts, is that fair to say that you work for Todd yeah, Gold with for yeah he's the boss. Um, Emily Rapplack is the author of Poster Child, a memoir, and the Still Point of the Turning World, which was a New York Times bestseller. Her work has appeared in Salon, Slate, the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, the Boston Globe, Red Book, O oh, the Oprah Magazine, and other public publications. Um, plus, she's the mother of Charlotte. Um, if, if you could see this baby, I won't make a big deal because I don't want to make anybody cry. But she's so beautiful. And Jim Crusoe has published five novels with a sixth on the way, two books of short stories, uh, Blood Lake and Abductions. Um, Jim teaches writing at Santa Monica College as well as an Antioch's MFA creative writing program. He's also published five books of poems. His latest novel, The Sleep Garden, due out this winter from Tin House, just got a starred review in Kirkus. Jim, where are you? There he is. There he is. I, I, you know, so I'm very, very proud to have these people here. In addition, um, Liz Stevens, where are you? So I didn't know, you know, I mean, when you have 77 writers in a book, you don't know them all. You're, you love them all, and you're a fan, and you've read their work, but you don't know them all. And what I didn't know when I planned this re reading with five writers was that Liz Stevens lives in Los Angeles. Ouch, ouch, it was bad. So Liz also has a very beautiful piece in the book, and we'll sign books for you after the show. Won't you, Liz? Yeah, okay. Without further ado, Chris, will you come up? Thank you, everybody. Hello, thanks for coming. Uh, this was originally published in The Collagist, like Dinah said, and if you're familiar with The Collagist, they do little blog interviews with you after you appear, and they said, so how did you decide to write ekphrasis? And I was like, what is ekphrasis? <laughs> no idea. But so it's art about art. So my piece is about uh, Christian Markley's The Clock, which is a film installation that's been at LACMA a few times. Fortunately, they, LACMA has provided a very concise description for those of you who aren't familiar. The Clock is a 24-hour single-channel montage constructed from thousands of moments of cinema and television history depicting the passage of time. Marclay has excerpted each of these moments from their original contexts and edited them together to create a functioning timepiece, synchronized to local time wherever it is viewed, marking the exact time in real time for the viewer for 24 consecutive hours. So this is called Thoughts on Time after viewing Christian Marclay's The Clock. 12.01 p.m. I have given myself an hour in which to write this. An hour used in this way seems an approximate and subjective measurement. If I become caught up in this project, an hour could pass fleetly. I could look up at the corner of my screen and see a 37 when I expected a 14. If I become distracted or prove unable to sever relations to my phone, the hour might drag endlessly. 12.14. There is no way to control time, although for my purposes here, I will chart it. We think that we have it shackled and compartmentalized, but time must find this amusing. We could no more likely shape fire. I was recently with a six-year-old girl who said when she grew up, she wanted to be a singer, president, and the clouds so she could block out the sun and make it less hot. <laughs> time is equally ambitious and unregulated. 12.19. 
Because when you sit in a theater watching Christian Marclay's The Clock, in my case at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, you become aware of what it might look like to manipulate time, to take its temperature, to capture it in small increments and hold it up like a gift. 1224. A friend thought that the clock was 24 hours of clock faces. How dull that would be, and how unlike Marclay's project. Clocks, perhaps the most stiff and uninteresting aspect of time as we experience it, are simply a device for Marclay to use in his exploration of the nature of time, or as time is lived. 1228. I have seen two sections of the clock on two separate occasions, 3.30 to 4.10 p.m. and 10.05 to 11.05 a.m. During both visits, I was viscerally aware of what time of day it was, not in terms of what the clock says, but in terms of what happens at this time of day. This is 3.35 in the afternoon, the film says. Here it is from the angle of a meter expiring as a man runs to the bank. Here it is from the angle of a team of law enforcement officers rushing to a bomb site. There is much rushing towards bomb sites in the clock. Thus is the nature of Hollywood. Here it is from the angle of some women sitting down to tea in a period drama. 1233. Here is 10.06 in the morning. Big and Carrie are getting married. A couple is waking up. A woman is not waking up as Humphrey Bogart leans over her prone and drug-addled body. I can vacuum. She takes the pills, the housekeeper has explained. A team of law enforcement officers rushes to a bombsite. Sophia Loren runs sexily to breakfast while Marlon Brando tells her to eat more quickly. Yes, sir, she keeps saying sexily. 12.38. Because not only is the clock about time, about how expectations of behavior change throughout the minutes, hours, days, about how decisions are made incessantly based on what some lines in a circle dictate. It is about the movies, thousands of movies that Christian Marclay watched with a singular purpose. For how long? How much time? 1248. Alarm clocks in movies demonstrate how careless filmmakers can be. In my 10.05 to 11.05 a.m. visit, alarms were going off willy-nilly, as if someone would actually set their alarm for 10.13, 10.37, 10.54. I have since been told I am completely incorrect about this. (laughs) 12.51. Marclay's editing makes clear that certain minutes of the hour are more important than others. At the top of the hour approaches, the drama builds, artificially created by editing sequences, but also intrinsic to our arrangement of and adherence to clock time. Things happen purposefully at 2, at 5, at 8. If something happens at 4.37 or 9.03, it is either by accident or because someone is not literally and metaphorically on time. 12.58. One of the strangest sensations of the clock is that, at least once, during each of my two visits, which were to be followed by other engagements, I felt the need to look at my watch. (laughs) I was sitting there in the theater, watching time pass, but somehow in my mind, cinema time and real time existed in two separate realms. Realizing that in this one particular instance they do not was startling and magical. Thank you. Uh, I left an eclair right here. Don't look at me. It's in a box. Where is it? Oh, okay. Woo! Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming.
Uh, thank you, Dinah, for including me in your book. I appreciate it. Um, and it's super cool to do a reading with um, people I both like and respect, um, which is unusual sometimes, um, but particularly with uh, friends, which is always so cool, and so cool to see all of you guys, too, and so many familiar faces. Um, so this essay that I'm going to read, uh, it's called Jolton Joe Has Left and Gone Away. Um, I wrote this essay 10 years ago, um, and I don't think I had read it again um, afterwards because it was, um, well, it's sad. And when I gave it to Dinah, my, my first thought was, well, I don't want this thing that I wrote 10 years ago to ever see any other eyes because it, will, it was awful, um, clearly. And then Dinah said she liked it, so then I immediately agreed, yes, it was great, and I, we should have it in the book. Um, it originally appeared in the magazine Hobart, and so right before the book came out, I put a link up to the story, and I got a phone call at my office at the University of California, Riverside, where I'm uh, employed in an ivory tower, um, where I'm sure there'll be hunger strikers tomorrow, and um, a little hunger striker humor. No one, no, no, no one ever finds that funny, apparently. Um, but I got a phone call from a cousin who I, have, I haven't spoken to this woman since I was 10 years old. And she apparently, through um, some process, she's not my Facebook friend, but saw my post that linked to this story and decided what she needed to do was call me at my work and leave a message that said I had violated Hebrew law for writing this piece and that I was to never speak ill of my dead father again um, and that she was asking me as a woman never to ever tell this story again. So now you're going to tell So here we go. She can go fuck herself. Um, this is gonna, we're recording this for a podcast too, right? Good. You don't want to piss off novelists. You know what? You don't. You really don't want to. Um, but the, the last thing I want to say before I read this this essay, um, which will take nine minutes and thirty six seconds to read, um, is that so? I wrote this ten years ago, and um, I'm not as angry as I used to be, um, and I think that's important. That when I look at this piece, I'm reminded of a moment in time in my life when I thought I would always be this angry, um, and I'm happy that I'm not. Uh, so this is Jolton Joe has left and gone away. I can't say for certain how much of my father's life was a lie. I know a few things are fact. He worked as a newsman for a variety of television stations in the San Francisco Bay Area and the Pacific Northwest. He once won a local Emmy for a documentary he did on stewardesses. He tried and failed to produce his own talk show in the 1960s called International Airport, an experience, my mother says, led to a nervous breakdown and their eventual divorce in 1973. But that may not be true. I know that my father adopted his own stepdaughter's son and never told him that his sister was his mother, and then abandoned the boy as he had his own children some 20 years earlier. And I know that my father loved baseball. I know that for the five years I tried to get to know him before finally deciding on my own that he wasn't a good person. Baseball was often the only thing we shared, a kind of filament to a life neither of us had lived. Did I ever tell you about the time I played catch with Joe DiMaggio, he asked. 
We were sitting in his condo in Rancho Mirage, the last strings of another long fight balled up between us. No, I said, you never did. He'd just gotten a job with the A's, he said. So this was 1968 or 69, so you'd already been born. No, I said, I was born in 1971. You were? I always thought you were born in 69. That's Linda, I said. Linda, at the time, was suing my father to recover hundreds of thousands of dollars in back child support. Your sister, he said, is an angry person. You know, I suffered too. You kids were the only victims here. I have to go, I said. I'd heard it all before. I heard the lies and the truth, and I didn't much care to dig out from the divots they both left inside of me. Don't you want to hear about DiMaggio? Though you're always a child to your parents, the truth as it relates to my own father is that he never knew me as a child. Between 1976 and 1995, I'd see my father a handful of times, funerals, weddings, a chance meeting or two. And in those times, we'd talk about nothing in particular, a gulf of anger and sadness filled with ellipses of conversation. When those silences became too much, when it became clear that genetics alone would not fill in for words, he'd turn to baseball. You still a fan of the A's? He asked me during a lull in his mother's funeral. I was 13 and hadn't seen him in nearly five years. Yes, I said. We were sitting beside each other, and I could smell his aftershave, a sweet, perfumed cologne that seemed wrong for the day. His tie had been cut in half by the rabbi, and I remember wondering if it had been expensive, if he'd spent the child support money on it, if he was sad to lose the tie. His face was covered in small bumps of razor burn, and I remembered the last time I'd seen him. He'd come to our house in Walnut Creek, and my mother, who raged at the very mention of his name, had kissed him on the cheek, touched his face with her palm, and told him he needed to shave. This is the only memory I have of tenderness between them, a yellowed snapshot in my head, though today I'm not sure if that's how it happened at all. They're not looking too good this year, he said. Did I ever tell you I met DiMaggio when he worked for the A's? Played catch with him. I'm not a very athletic person. My legs are short, my torso is thick, my arms are skinny. The only sport I ever played competitively was soccer, and for a time I was good at it, if only by virtue of the fact that I wanted to hurt my opponent. <laughs> when I stepped onto the field, something in me switched, and I became the kind of aggressive person I wasn't in real life. During father-son games, where I was frequently the only son without a father, the coaches had to pull me aside and tell me to dial it down a notch so I couldn't slide tackle Jeremy Joseph's father. <laughs> I played for over a dozen years and only scored a handful of goals, but that never mattered. I wanted to drop people. I wanted the players on the other team to be afraid of me. I wanted to be as intimidating as Goose Gossage was on the pitcher's mound, a fat, burly mass of anger who simply did not care about the score, only the one he had to settle. <laughs> My father loved Gossage. Or maybe he didn't. Because when you have so few memories of someone, you cast importance on the smallest things. Like a visit to a television station in Portland, Oregon, where people called your father boss. And where you two watched a bank of TVs filled with Seattle Mariners highlights. Gossage rearing back and striking out one Mariner after another. And your father saying, Gossage does it the right way. But that's not your father. 
It's not even mine. You hang on to things when you're young. You control what you can. And maybe when you play soccer, you imagine you're a baseball player your father admired the last time you can remember seeing him. I'd like you to come to my wedding, my father said. This was in the mid-1990s, my senior year in college, the beginning of a stretch where I would attempt to get to know him from an adult perspective. My grandfather, my father's own father, had implored me to decide on my own whether the man I'd vilified in my childhood mind for his abandonment and failure to take responsibility for anything, simply anything, was indeed the monster I imagined. Separate from the silences I and my siblings had endured, separate from the court judgments, separate from the stories of how he was going to really take care of his adopted son, only to excise him like so much garbage. Why? I asked. It's time we start acting like father and son, he said. Your brother is coming. That's because you were a father to him, I said. I said it to hurt him, to get a reaction, to drop him. But what made my father incredible, what made the difference between his lies and his truth murky and disturbing, is that he didn't react. He never reacted. It'll be fun, he said. We'll even have a little bachelor party. When I didn't respond, because I was somewhere between crying and vomiting, the two poles I typically battled in his presence, he changed the subject. Your A's aren't doing too well, I see. Why do you do that, I said. Why do you never address what I'm saying? Because it's the past, he said. Let's move forward. The night before his wedding, in a hotel bar in Longview, Washington, while my father's friends tell me what a great man my dad is, how they don't understand why they've never met me or any of my siblings. I watched the reflection of a baseball game in a smoked glass mirror. It's such a simple game. The rules concise. The human contact limited. The chance for redemption as near as the next pitch. A toast, my father says, to my sons. But my brother has long since gone to our room where I'll find he's just as sick as I am. I can't remember the last time I saw my father alive. It might have been the time I drove to his house and asked him to, to stop suing my sister, not to force her into bankruptcy after her attempt to retrieve the child support was thwarted by the courts. It might have been when I drove to his house and asked him not to sue my mother for the same reasons. It might have been another time altogether. Scar tissue has formed over many of my memories, and when I peel it back, Everything rushes together, and I'm nine years old, memorizing the statistics of every major league player, filling my head with numbers and names and all-time records and minutia, anything to stop me from concentrating on what is empty about the rest of my life. By age 12, I know more about Ricky Henderson than I will ever know about my father. Your father is a great man, his most recent wife said to me during one of those last visits. Why you and your brother and sisters can sit around and say such terrible things about him is a wonder to me. He never paid child support, I said. I didn't see or hear from him for decades at a time. He was legally not allowed into California because he was such a deadbeat. You could have picked up the phone, she said. <laughs> I was ten, I said. I tell her he's doing the same thing to his adopted son. Well, she said, he's adopted and half black, 
That was all a big mistake, if you ask me. <laughs> Later, when his wife had stepped away, my dad would tell me how much her son reminded him of me. Her son was a petty criminal, the kind of guy who got drunk, ran from the cops, and crashed a Camaro into a bank. <laughs> you're, a, you're a lot alike, said my father. But I can't talk to him about baseball like I can talk to you. Did I ever tell you about the time I played catch with Joe DiMaggio? The day after my father died, I called my mother and asked if she remembered the time Dad played catch with Joe DiMaggio. What? No, that's crazy, she said. He never did that. He said it was about 1968 or 1969, I said. I'd certainly remember that, she said. We talked for a while about my father, about what he was like long before I was born, about their life together. She tells me I would have liked him then. She tells me he was a good person, but that something drove him crazy. She tells me she is sad for the man she married, but not for the man he became. That night, I leaf through old scrapbooks my mother keeps high on a shelf in her house. In these books, my father is young and handsome and happy. There are pictures of him with my brother Lee, my sister Karen, my sister Linda, me as a newborn, my mother, who in these pictures is his wife, a notion I cannot imagine, his own long-dead parents. And in each of them, I am struck by the sense that I've never known any of these people, at least not in the context of these photos. The more I stare, the more I feel like I'm invading someone else's memories. And yet, in one of the last pictures, I see a baby sitting in a high chair, wearing an Oakland A's baby shirt, while a man who looks so much like me that it snatches my breath stands in the background, smiling. Thank you. Sorry, I sat in the wrong place. <laughs> um, you lay across us. Oh, that'd be good. And then you can lift me up in the air and do that acting exercise or that punk thing. Uh, I never got to do that punk thing. That would be... Yeah! That would be scary. Okay. Um, thank you, Dinah, not only for including me in this amazing anthology with these gorgeous writers, but also, uh, Dinah is so accomplished and talented and modest, she didn't mention exactly that Judith Kitchen died while this book was being made, and, and Dinah had to finish editing it herself, um, which she did without ever complaining, and did an amazing job. Um, so I am also, as are we all, grateful for that. Um, this is a pretty short little piece. It takes about four minutes to read. It's about um, going into a very creepy old um, medical museum, pathology museum in Vienna. And uh, funnily enough, the title is Viennese Pathology Museum. <laughs> With their vast lawns and lordly trees wielding floral authority, the grounds make me feel small, make one feel small. At least they did me. 
Housed in a squat, rotund tower of dun-colored brick, built in 1784, the museum had once been a jail for the insane. Chains still attached to the walls in small dark cells with barred doors. Exhibits are shelved along corridors and in the old cells. The word dungeon fits well, though the building's politely described in guidebooks as fortress-like. <laughs> From the outside, the tower looks like a giant bran muffin. This resemblance led to a German word for cake becoming slang for mental asylum. Five stories high, the ex-nut house slash museum could be mistaken for an ancient observatory. The building's ringed by rows of vertical slits, which, since windows read as eyes, give it a sinister look. Visitors climb stone stairs between floors. That summer, I was 20, all I thought about was the great river of suffering, meaning my own. Large specimen jars are what I recall, contents suspended like plums in heavy syrup, and how cold and dark the building felt, earlier centuries air sifting into one's lungs, tainting one's brain. Only the jars seemed lit by murky brown beams, like sun through muddy water. Lightheaded with dread, I wanted to flee as soon as I'd entered. Yet the museum seemed a test I had to pass by remaining, despite growing faint, to stare at a room of jarred infants, each representing some birth defect. Was this what came of procreation? Why was their fate not mine, and vice versa? Did the specimens in glass jars cry out, however illegibly from their formaldehyde naps? How long had these babies been sleeping? Was theirs a heavenly rest, bloated, alone, Siamese twins, the sole exception, each afloat in his own final solution, unable to say if something itched or hurt? A greenish fetus, junior mermaid, embraced her tail. Suffering seemed to drip from the stone enclosure as molasses trickles down the walls of old sugar refineries. I don't know why everybody said this book was dark. <laughs> a tourist, nurturing 20 words of German, afraid everyone could tell I was a Jew, I also felt tugs of connection to Vienna. My grandparents on my father's side had come from Austria. People eating pastry in cafes and walking avenues of linden trees looked like me, so much so that I was often asked directions by other tourists or even natives in their rapid-fire German. No help at all. I was happy to lend my laminated map, which I flapped at askers like some kind of stiff flag. I was able only to order café mit milch and say... In Schuldigung, when I bumped into locals, which I frequently did, forgetting I had arms and legs to keep track of, alive only in the furious hive of my head, wondering if the bees in there would ever learn to get along or make honey. Was the pathology museum an endurance test, a shove towards schadenfreude, towards embracing the fate of this mortal coil always in mind, though never yet faced? I wouldn't mind getting back the complexion or energy I had in those days. But 
you couldn't pay me to re-inhabit that younger, seething, bottled-up self. You're a freak. Decay and chaos await you. Something with bat guano breath kept telling me. And I would drink, smoke, or kiss anything to reduce the volume of that constant hissing. Getting older has helped, I guess. At 20, I ran down the stone stairs of the Viennese Pathology Museum and burst into the park. For an hour or so, I lay on my back in manicured grass, waiting for the tour to end and my friends to exit. Breathing carefully, like I had just learned how, I opened my eyes every few minutes on blinding brightness to watch butterflies flit. It's hardly ever like that now. But in the pathology museum, I was ashamed and afraid of being found out, afraid of waking up floating and ravenous in some dusty jar. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Dinah, for including me in this. Thank you all for coming out. I am also really funny in real life, but not so much in writing. Yeah. So um, this is a, an essay from a series of essays I wrote um, in a fury called the sort of death grief essays. Good times. Yeah. Get ready. Um, and I wrote it in Mexico at a museum with my husband, who's here with my gorgeous daughter. And I was pregnant at the time. Um, so that probably informs some of some of the darkness of this, very introspective. And it's called Los Angelitos. I can't say this far away. At the museum in the birthplace of the artist Diego Rivera in the city of Guanajuato, Mexico, there is a gallery of portraits called Los Angelitos. The museum itself is like a stop-time photograph from a different age. Various rooms of the house are staged, although some are off-limits, and visitors move through the available spaces as if moving through an imagined day in the life of a family whose furniture remains intact, though its members are dead. The bedroom with thick wooden furniture and canopied crib for a tiny Diego, surrounded by a braided cloth rope to ward off those who might be tempted to touch. The impressive entrance halls lined with art in gold frames, once used dishes now stacked behind spotless glass. The only sounds are the shuffling of curious feet and muted voices in English, Spanish, and German. On the top floor of the house, in the upper rooms full of light, are the little angels, two white-walled galleries of carefully curated photographs of babies being held by parents, siblings, sole mothers, and single fathers, all dressed in fancy clothes that are neatly pressed and seldom worn. In some of these family portraits, older children with dark wings of hair over their eyes lean on one elbow over the baby, who is usually on a table or in the arms of a solemn-looking parent. Solemnity was usual in the 19th century photograph, so this does not surprise me. I look at the dark-haired families. I stare into the faces of the children, the parents, the babies. Because my son Ronan was blind for a year before he died when he too was still a baby, it takes me a full 20 minutes of looking at the photographs to realize that the babies are dead and not just afflicted by the unique vulnerability of being a baby and having no choice but to rely on the goodness of others of the world. 
I'm used to the sight of the sightless after so many long hours singing into the face of a baby who would never see me, never know me apart from the animal instinct he was born with that told him I was his mother. I assumed these were baptismal photos. My partner has been walking silently behind me and only when I turn around and see his face do I realize my mistake. Are they dead? I ask him as if they have just died and I am asking for confirmation. He nods. His eyes are dark and glittering. He can see me. I thought they were being baptized. The babies in the portraits mounted on the walls where Diego Rivera was born are wearing burial gowns that are frilly and white and as elaborate and delicate as baptismal gowns. Looking more closely, I can see that the way the living person interacts with the camera is different from the stillness of the babies. In death, even their bodies are mute, although it is those silent bodies that tell the whole story of every other person in the photograph. I feel dizzy with the weird meaning of time in this lit upper room. Everyone in these photographs is long dead, but in this isolated, unrepeatable, documented, mummified moment, only the babies have marched forward out of measured time. Their blank eyes offer only reflection of where they have gone, which is a place from which there is no return, no going back, an unknown we are all headed for and about which there are no believable reports. Why can't these babies tell us what we need to know? The room is suddenly loud with Ronan's voice, the way it faded and quickened in the minutes before he died and then stopped. The way it was always only a collection of sounds that never shaped into words, because there was a neuron path that had been burned to the ground of his brain, and smoldering and useless became part of a decimated forest it would take a figure from a fairy tale to heal or resurrect. A forest of personality and personhood that nobody, not even he, the inhabitor of it, would ever visit or know or recognize. I feel a surge through my body of something that is not grief or anger, but a necessary numbness that acts as a net through which I view the rest of the gallery. I am light-bodied and cold. I do not want to run out. I want to see these babies the way I did not want to see my son's face in the hours after he died, but did so anyway. Lifting the shroud again and again, not wanting to see, wanting to see. His eyes would not stay closed, although his body was heavy, so I closed them again and again, trailing the bitten edges of my nails through his long eyelashes. I was not weeping, but choking, and dreaming with disbelief, relief, release, alienation, and attention. This is woe. I thought then, a brief single syllable that seemed to sum up the simple crushing fact that he was gone. I would be left to tell his story and not the other way around, a fairy tale grinding backward, a gruesome reverse. The week before we arrived in Mexico, I discovered in a dresser drawer I was cleaning out, after a year of stuffing into it receipts, underwear, and stray gym socks, a single red mitten that was Ronin's, and the shirt that I cut from his body after his death, printed with rockets and planets arranged in a whimsical pattern, a little boy's dream of space, of the beyond. I had been moving both items around in various drawers for months, always wondering what happened to the pants that went with the shirt I cut off. Where were the matching space pants? But I never bothered to really look for them. Ronan's not an angel, I say, all the time to anyone who will listen. God doesn't have him. Who does? It 
is Christmas in Mexico and all around this city with its winding cobbled streets and ringing bells, we have watched people marching purposefully to cathedrals, holding their baby Jesus figures, decked out in festive costume and plucked from the home crash to be blessed by the priest. It is men who do this ritual shuttling of the doll, their precious inanimate bundles wrapped in brightly colored blankets printed with the image of wide-eyed animated bears and Hello Kitty. Dry leaves cross the zocalo, the plazas, the polished holiday shoes of the living children headed to mass or headed home. At night, when the otherwise nonstop dance party on the roof next door to our rented house takes a brief hiatus and we are able to sleep, I have dreams in which Ronan is helpless in some foreign land. Someone is putting him on a plane, but they don't know how to care for him, how to support his head, how to feed him, and he will die. People want to hurt him, but I don't understand why, and this makes me murderous. They want to hurt him, cross every boundary of cruelty. And in my dreams, I try to kill them with my hands, bombs, knives, rockets, words, anything that can be fashioned or shaped into a weapon. I wake up frightened by my rage, by a feeling of impotence that is the loss of love. I thrash around, slobber and pant, and cannot be coaxed back to sleep. I listen to the music next door. I think, suddenly, I should get up and dance. But I lie still and think of the portraits of those dead babies, Los Angelitos. The sounds of the techno music and shouts of the living mixed with the imagined voices of the unnamed dead babies who leap from their portraits and form a circle on the floor of the well-lit upper gallery in the home of the dead artist in a country where skeletons walk with the living in artwork and lie half buried in the ground. And inside the circle sits my son, telling a story of what we need to know, although nobody can stay awake or asleep long enough to hear what he's saying. Only the babies cheer him on with their language of coos and kicks and hiccups. Beholden to no one, they say only what they want to hear. Ronan keeps turning the pages of a book that nobody else can read, his own story, the story of ordinary babies in ordinary time, and the people who are left behind to mourn both. Thanks. Thank you all for coming, and thank Dinah, and the readers today, too. Um, This is called Traffic. I can't remember exactly how old I was, I'm guessing eight or nine, when I first learned that my father had killed a child. The actual event, if I can call it that, took place before I was born, I think, but I can't be absolutely sure. In any case, it wasn't until I was in primary school that my mother mentioned it almost in passing. After that, when it came up now and again, it was never as a shameful thing or as a crime, but always as an example of the unfairness of the world, a parable about traffic safety and greedy parents. The boy, the story went, had been lurking behind a parked automobile and just as my father was driving home from work, dashed out in pursuit of a rubber ball with such little regard for his own life that my poor father never had a chance to stop. This would have been before or maybe during the Second World War and somehow that came into it as well. The child died, though I was never told the details, only that afterwards his parents had the temerity to take my father to court. 
criminal or civil, I'm not sure which. In the end, my father was found not guilty because, the car, because of his car's skid marks that I was told showed he could not possibly have stopped in time. Or maybe they showed he had not been traveling that fast in the first place. In any case, it was the skid marks along with a good lawyer that kept him out of jail. And clearly, this child's parents had been monsters for thinking that a man as nice and as good as my father was would somehow strike their child on purpose. And so it happened, although I never connected these two things, that shortly after I first heard this story, I started running out into traffic. Not traffic exactly, but in front of single cars like a bullfighter dodging a bull on a narrow highway near my house. I would hide behind a bush, and then when it was too late for the driver to hit the brakes, jump out and run straight across the road as close to his car as I could. Sometimes I did it alone, but usually with a friend who could watch and describe the expressions on the panicked driver's faces because I was too busy trying not to be hit. If I were hit, though, the knowledge that it would be their fault was a powerful attraction. And so over the space of about a month, one summer I got into the habit of doing this two or three times a week until one driver, after an especially close call, turned his car around, pulled up, and yelled at us, at me. He was red-faced and trembling and furious, his eyes nearly popping out of his head, and I was scared to see anyone so angry. I quit then and there. But there is one more piece of information to this story, one other fact I'm not quite certain about, but which I almost completely believe is true, one that nobody ever spoke of. Namely, back when I was a child, there were a lot of places called neighborhood bars, places where men would stop after work and have a couple shots, down a few beers, and talk. They were, to use a curiously modern word, spots for them to network, to hear of jobs, of cars for sale, houses for rent, or just talk about current events and share complaints. By those standards, my father was a good networker. I don't think I can ever remember him coming straight home from work without the smell of whiskey on his breath, and there were countless nights I remember my mother complaining as the dinner she prepared was left out cold, waiting for his return until 9 or 10 o'clock. In other words, my father was an alcoholic in those days, although in those days the only way I ever heard the word applied was to men like my Uncle Louie, who my father said couldn't handle the booze, which is probably true enough. Because after Louis joined Alcoholics Anonymous, he used the meetings to build a network of his own. Louis networked himself into such a career as to leave the rest of our family standing open-mouthed in awe. Louis had a racing stable, a country house, and his kids went to private schools, all unheard of in my world. At least until the day they found out my uncle was a criminal and had used his position of trust, one he'd established through countless AA meetings, to steal the company blind. But my father could handle the booze. He kept his job even though many was the night or morning I would hear him in the bathroom vomiting, something I took to be the price of being an adult male. These were the days, and maybe still are in some quarters, when at least for certain a certain class of people, the first thing you did when a guest walked through the door was to offer them a drink. Then people would reply, I thought you'd never ask. Those were the days that drunk films, W.C. Fields and The Thin Man, were considered charming. So 
I'm as certain as I can be that my father had been drinking the day he killed that boy. That would explain, for one thing, why the boy's parents felt they had a right to make their case. Some witness or another had undoubtedly smelled the liquor on my father's breath. That would explain how the whole thing got as far as an actual trial, and maybe it would also explain why my mother, a legal secretary, kept slaving at her job in the firm that had defended him, even as my father complained about her bosses being pigs. It would also provide the answer as to why my father kept on drinking after his, for years after his family and doctors told him he had to give it up. To quit would have been for him to admit that there was something wrong with alcohol, and therefore when he'd struck the child, that he'd been wrong. That would have been more, I think, than he could have borne. So instead of quitting when I got a little older, he would encourage me to take a sip of ginger ale and rye highball or beer or wine, though he wasn't much on wine, to keep him company. We were co-conspirators in a way. And then afterwards, for many years, for nearly 20 of them, it was the alcohol that kept me company. I've noticed that in America, no one admits to being old, and I can't blame them. The old are just repositories for loss, or worse, endless and self-congratulatory memories. When it comes to my choice of reading a material or even watching, I much prefer stories of the young caught up in their first flashes of excitement or about the middle age and their first dawn of disillusion. Still, I find plenty in old guys like myself to listen to, mostly in the locker room of the local Young Men's Christian Association. Three out of those four names untrue. <laughs> in that contact context, I'm happy to report that my fellow oldsters seem to have learned little, or if we have, we sure don't speak of it. So at the why the guys in the locker room talk about sports or food or nothing much at all, but certainly not how they've lived their lives in blindness, and not how the person they thought they were and the person they turned out to be is different. I don't blame them. It's not a subject for mixed company. And as for my part, I ask myself, do any of them need to know that while I lived much of my life thinking it was one kind of a book, an adventure story, I suppose, it was already a sad history, one with whole pages torn and missing, with sentences, some mercifully and others not, illegible. My father, my own son, and I have this in common. We are all dog lovers. My son was raised with dogs his entire life, and I've kept dogs for at least 50 years. But what strikes me as strange about my father and his dogs is that right until the end of his life, his animals would often get away. Sometimes a gate would be left open. Sometimes there would be a hole in the fence that should have been mended but wasn't. Oh. Walking out of the house to check his mail, my father, who should have known better, would leave the front door wide open. And then his dog would be running down the street into traffic with my father shouting after it, sometimes catching up to it, sometimes not. Sometimes, arriving too late, he would watch it killed. Or such is my conjecture. I have one more thing, one more thing to say, which is interesting. I was reading this essay over um, this morning to um, just to see what it would be like, and it occurred to me that, in fact, I could. I was trying, I tried to think what dogs did my father see killed, and it occurred to me he hadn't seen any. It was me who saw the dog when I was eleven. Oh, wow. Thank you.
so um, there are pictures in this book. Uh, just a few of the essays come with pictures. And Judith Kitchen's essay comes with a picture, which you obviously can't see, but this is what it looks like on the page. Um, it's a picture. I just want to tell you about the picture. It's a picture of a girl, a young girl. Um, and the whole picture is kind of slanted to one side. The camera must have been at an angle. And the girl is wearing sort of a funny little dress and stockings. And there are uh, nine, There are. let's see, there are seven chickens no, I'm sorry, there are nine chickens on the ground around her, scurrying around on the ground, and then there's one chicken sort of on her shoulder pointed down towards her chest, as if it's going to dive into her chest, and there's another chicken on her head. And the essay, which comes about 50 pages after, you got it? Yeah. And the, uh, the essay, which comes about 50 pages after Jim's, it, let's see, for those of you who have books, it's on page 286. And the essay comes about 50 pages after Jim's essay, and it's called, Who? Oh my God, who is she? I want her for my own. I want her affinity with all those chickens, her lopsided leaning, her house all a-tilt. I want that tipping chimney and the angle of her neck as she lets one hand push its way into her heart, another pose as a hat. I want that practical dress and the long black stockings, even the sensible shoes, the light that fattens itself on late afternoon windows and the shadows that lengthen the yard, the chickens that peck at their shadows, whittling away at their lives. Look at the way light catches each shingle each brick, each clabbered lining the side of the house, look at it fasten itself to the folds of her skirt. This was a moment, the day of the chickens. But all days were chickens, scattering feed and gathering eggs. Off lens, the hen house with its strange, musty odors. Off lens, the rustle of worry at the doorway, the nattering fuss as her fingers sift through straw, chore after chore, the lifetime that added more and then more. I want this moment, but not what it stands for. Want one minute of overlapping shadow, one slapdash second of light, quick while she has a perch on pleasure, quick before her tiny breasts grow bigger, before she lifts up her hand to lift down, that feathery weight. Weren't they great? You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.